Hi, this is Paul. Last week I took a little clip from this Speak Life thing and I posted it on Twitter and got quite a rise from some people. And I've been making some other posts on Twitter about a variety of things and it's very interesting. I'm not going to name the accounts, but, but certain accounts that continue in some ways to sort of uh, speak out of their locked modernity. So let's let's begin with let's begin with Glenn here. Filling my mind with a, a larger vision for things, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, three different individuals who have come across my Twitter feed in the mm. last day, and they're all talking about human rights and God. And what we're going to do is we're going to look in, at, in fact, four people. We're going to look at Yuval Noah Harari. We're going to look at Tom Holland, we're going to look at Jordan Peterson, and we're going to look at Emmanuel. And we'll figure out what that means as we go. But why don't we watch together uh, a viral moment from a TED Talk that Yuval Noah Harari gave nine years ago as he talks about human rights. That was really helpful that, because um, I, I was struck when I watched these little, these little videos that were coming up from Harari, but I thought, this, this, he's been, I remember watching this is way before the Jordan Peterson stuff, finding little clips and reading him and hearing about this stuff and thinking, boy, he's been talking about this forever. Well, the recordings were from a while ago. As a fictional reality, let's have a look. Most legal systems are based on this idea, this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around it may be a very nice story, it may be a very attractive story, we want to believe it, but it's just a story. It's not a reality. It is not a biological reality. Just as jellyfish and woodpeckers and ostriches have no rights, homo sapiens have no rights also. Take a human, cut him open, look inside, you find their blood and you find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. And the same thing is also true in the political field. States and nations are also like human rights and like God and like heaven. They too are, are, are just stories. A mountain is a reality. You can see it, you can touch it, you can even smell it. But Israel or the United States, they are just stories, very powerful stories, stories we might want to believe very much, but still they are just stories. You can't really see the United States. You cannot touch it. You cannot smell it. So this has gone viral on Twitter. Um, this was also done as a TED Talk, Yuval Noah Harari, after that. Now, I do want to make the point that this is, again, about the recession of modernity and about how you can, again, this is 10 years ago, roughly, how different the world has become in 10 years in this way of seeing the world. And I would say more than, more than just in this way of seeing the world individually, because what seems to be really important is how we see the world collectively. 
was invited to do the proper TED talk. This is a TEDx. Then he did TED Global in London, and it, it became uh, a, a popular thing. And he was in the middle of writing Sapiens, which is his you know, multi-million best-selling book that he followed up with, Homodeus, where he tracks the history of humanity as Sapiens. And then he, you know, in Homodeus, talks about the future, where we're going to arise and ascend into a different kind of species, a different kind of human. Um, why do you think this went viral on Twitter? I've never seen that clip, and it's extraordinary to me that when he says, oh, mount, like, I can see a mountain. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you don't actually. What you see is a conglomeration of rocks and things. And when he said this, I thought, wow. I have heard this how many, how many, how many times out of Jonathan Peugeot's mouth, especially when he's doing these conversations with uh, celebrity atheists online. He keeps making this point, and this point just goes right over people's heads. Let's... Things like that, but and he says, "Oh, mount! Like I can see a mountain." Yeah. And I'm like, "Well, you don't actually. What you see is a conglomeration of rocks and things like that." But yeah. he like will adopt a standpoint and see these things and yes. go, "That's a mountain." How do you know? Now again, this goes all the way back to the first con. The the first it was the third conversation between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, the first on stage one with Brett Weinstein there. This was Peterson's point. Peterson was tried to make it again and again and again to Sam that the mountain, a mountain, any mountain, isn't sort of, it isn't just, na it's naively seen, but there's a whole bunch of things that go into seeing that mountain. I don't think my dog sees a mountain. My dog will see certain things and won't see other things. This whole business of seeing, we actually see things together. Then you say, well, how do we see things together? There's things we see together and things we don't see together. And again, back to Don't Sleep, There's Snake story, where everyone in the village sees the God on the other side of the bank, and the missionary and the daughter don't see the God on the other side of the bank. Try as they might, everyone in the town is like, look, look, there's the God, there's the God. Nobody else sees it. And this just sort of boggles our mind that people are like this. And I've talked about this point again and again. And so here, Paul Blackham, I think that's how to say his name, um, makes this point. I'll let him make it a little bit further. Oh, yeah. it's not a hill. That's right. How do you know right. it's not a hill? And why is it? When does? Because if he just sees a few rocks, yeah. would he go? It's a mountain. Yes. No, he wouldn't. He has to be, and he arbitrarily selects a certain point at which, yep. or he might say, social convention does that, and yep. and and, yep. and says this is a mountain, and go. Now that's a mountain. Yes. That's fact. Yes. But then if he sees in a conglomeration of human beings, and either, and so there's a point at which people go, oh no, that's the United States, and he goes, oh no, you see, I can't buy into that. <laughs> I'm having a conglomeration of rocks, but not a conglomeration of yeah, human yeah, beings. Yeah, yeah. You're like, dude, your metaphysical trousers are down. We can. <laughs> see how you're being thick i yeah. sort of feel embarrassed yeah, yeah, yeah. for him really yeah. but i can i can see why people get because it's like he's like rights are not real you right. know nations aren't real yes rights are real and i'm like but it, by that same logic neither are mountains yeah like neither is okay so played this before wanted to play it again now i want to go to a recent jonathan peugeot recording from a different channel 
part of the strange internet life where that Jonathan Peugeot is now immersed in, you get invited to other channels and part of what you have to do, if you've been watching a bunch of Tom Holland lately and poor Tom Holland sort of has to say his shtick again and again and again and again. It's sort of like if you're a 1970s rock band, you just have to keep playing that darn song again and again and again and again. Now, what I'm going to play from Peugeot, some of you have heard so, so often. But what I, what I recognize often is that I can hear some of these things again and again. You can talk about liturgy. You can talk about Bible reading. You can hear these things again and again and again, and yet they still somehow sink in deeper, and you see it more pervasively, and you see it more often. You've tried to, I guess, build your life around that are precious. You could say understanding that we're in a story is something that has been a big deal for me, and trying to identify what that story is that, that we're part of, you know. Okay, so we're... This living in a story is very much a part of what we see. What we see depends on the story. Now, you can illustrate this in simple ways. I told the story before. There once was a child care center started by members of the church. They used the facility. They leased it from the facility. Business-wise, the child care center was a disaster. But uh, the woman, one of the women who started the child care center, had a little York, uh, had a little Yorkie that she named Baby. And one of the members of the church, um, who was better well off than most, um, backed, they co-signed on the loan to do the, the refitting of the center, all of this stuff. And so he was kind of behind this. And so the, the ladies who were running this thing were working this together, together with him. One day he gets a panicked phone call from her and all he heard was baby fell on the sidewalk and she's dead. And of course he's like thinking some child care worker dropped an in a human infant and the human infant fell on the sidewalk and died. And suddenly this member of the church is thinking about liability and lawsuits and Okay, well, did you call the insurance company? And he's, he's just going down this road. And then I get a phone call because I'm the pastor. That, that, you know, and I was at, so I go over there to discover, oh, it wasn't a human infant child. It was her Yorkie that she named Baby. And she dropped Baby and Baby died. Now, you know, it was a lovely little dog, and, and we all loved the little dog, but it was an order of magnitude different from the other story. You had two stories here. You can even illustrate this in, in, in ways that when you walk into a situation, the story that you have in mind determines what you see in the room. Use the illustration of the bouncing the basketball and the ape running through. It's that deep. And part of what I think is destroying the, the communal implicit assumptions of modernity is the increasing realization, certainly pluralism is a part of it, but also the increasing realization that this is so deeply profound with us. We can see it in, let's say, political 
discourse where two different sides seem to be making arguments from the same facts. No, they're seeing different facts. Well, why are they seeing different facts? Because they're living in different stories. And this has gotten to such a communal level, partly because we're no longer sort of all reading from the same mass media text. It's gotten to such a different level that we're discovering things about ourselves, even as individuals, not just as communities. And these stories govern significantly. And this is where sort of we, we connect stories up with spirits because the stories and the spirits change. And stories, when we think about stories governing, we just kind of have to think abstractly and imaginatively. But when you think about spirits governing, there's all sorts of much more ancient code that, that somehow comes up among us. Um, there's a strange kind of inevitable aspect to it. But once you embrace it, then, you know, it's a very positive thing. And I think that I realize that you know, the cause, at least one of the big causes of Western civilization is that we're in a, a, uh, a Christian story. Um, and that the, the advent of the Christian story has transformed, uh, the horizon of how people understood what a person is. Now he said sort of advent. And I, I think, I think he advent of the Christian story, the beginning of the Christian story, how people understood what is important, what our values are. And so I think that really understanding that and trying to live that out as much as possible has been the foundation for a lot of secondary things, which is, you know, embracing the, the values that that brings about and embracing the kind of mode of being that that, uh, that that suggests. But I think the more most important part is to understand uh, the reality of that story. And maybe one last thing is also understanding how in order to get out of that story, you have to take a certain posture, a certain oppositional posture, which I think is counterproductive and I, I think leads to dark places. Uh, now, I just finished this morning. I did my conversation with John Verveke. It's currently in No Wait, No Ads. It will come to the full channel. If you're the kind that doesn't want to wait, you can join No Wait, No Ads and see it right now. Before I put it, usually when I do a conversation like this, I, I, I mull on it for a little while and try to get an idea about, mm, is this title right? Um, and then sometimes I clip it up because I heard a bunch of things in the in the conversation. And one of the things about conversation is you're, you're working so quickly in a conversation that when you sit back and you think about the conversation, other things bubble up. One of the things that I was talking to John about was optimal grip fittedness um he, he made the argument that the um the spirit of the spirit of finesse is an optical optimal grip argument and i think that's a good one because i'm always trying to get at this sense of dead reckoning and and so i think part of what we're doing as we're living with these stories as we're living with these spirits and the stories keep adjusting and the spirits keep adjusting is that we are we are we are we're continuing in as a as a collective as a com, as a communal organism as a com, as a as a spiritual body we are continuing to work on this question of optimal grip we're working on dead reckoning we're we're trying to figure out well what is better and what is worse and it's 
it's not so much something between an abstract, even though the ideals sort of define a gravity in a situation, it is sort of A-B testing all the time. Is this better than that? Is this better than that? Is, 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 this, is this sexual ethical practice better or this position better? Is this uh, economic position better or is this one better? Is this policy better or is this policy better? And as a community, we're always just sort of going back and forth and back and forth, which of course makes free speech and an open media um, a very important thing. And, and of course, there's a lot of lamenting about the loss of mass media because that sort of kept us on the same page. But of course, mass media, especially in the middle of the 20th century, you think of Pravda and, and state, state organized media. <laughs> a lot of complaints that Canada has that now. Um, that that that's difficult because as a as a society we are we are intensively working on these questions of optimal grip let's let's go a little bit deeper into this and then there's a specific place i want to get at here i guess principles of for instance the enlightenment like for instance empiricism the empirical study the scientific method are they Counter to store. Now, now again, you can right away see if if what we see is intentionally driven. Come on in. Many scientific methods are intentionally driven, and so you find this with with enormously complex subjects like as let's say like psychology human beings are so astoundingly complex so so we're always start trying to drill down and find sort of do relevance realization and find sort of a tipping point or an inflection point on something and that that mitigate that that sort of that that pushes against the monarchical vision of just this is true. Storytelling, are to grand narratives, or are they complementary? Can they be matched up? I think so. I think they can be matched up. I think, sadly, one of the things that happened was that, for some people at least, they were set up as oppositional. Um, not for everybody who even developed that method, not for all the scientists, but there's a kind of cultural narrative that led to, you know, like 19th century materialism and even the new atheist movement, which is that there's opposition between the two. But I think that what empiricism offers is a capacity to predict phenomena, to quantify and predict phenomena in a manner that is accurate. And that is very helpful. It's very useful. It's a great power, but it does not provide the frame in which that happens. It actually doesn't even provide the identities in which that happens. It doesn't provide the care, which makes you choose what it is you're going to apply the method to. And that is where stories and more and a different tool set comes in, comes in handy. And I think it's important to have both because if we just have one, which is just the story tool set, at some point the story drifts from phenomena so much that you end up with a kind of schizophrenic uh, schizophrenic uh, lifestyle. But the other side is true that if you only focus on empirical sciences, 
then you have a blind, you have a kind of blind side. You can't see uh, what it is that's motivating your decisions and what it is that makes you care about this or that or value this or this over that. Uh, and so you need both at the same time. So let's use an example of one of the things that, that came up in uh, Christian circles was, you know, purity cultures. And now when I say purity culture, already in terms of your mental pathways, a whole bunch of you, I said evangelical, and then I said purity culture, sexual purity. Oh, okay. Um, and so basically one, one, of the, one of the things that was sort of sold was, well, if you wait to have sex on your wedding night, you will have the most amazing sex on your wedding night because you waited and because God will give it to you. And then, well, that's, that's a relatively simple test. And so you've got people who are waiting and then, well, it was the best sex they ever had. Give them that. Uh, might have been kind of a disaster. Might have been kind of funny. Um, because if you have enough sex, especially within a marriage, you'll have uh, times when it goes a certain way and times when it's just kind of doesn't go a certain way. Yeah, my kids don't listen to these videos, so uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But um, it, it gets to this point about you get to the point about framing, and then and then you begin to see that hmm, this this dead reckoning, this optimal, this seeking for an optimal grip, when there are too ma too many variables to follow. And it's tested over sort of a mass population and people are sort of, they're, they're reporting because of course there's no way to, um, there, there's no way to sort of gauge these things outside of reporting because even reporting themselves, was that a good meal or not? Hmm. Uh, is it the best meal? This is why people, they often ask me about favorites and I always say, I don't like doing, playing the favorites game. I don't mean even among people. I mean, what's your favorite color? Oh, I don't know. Depends on what. Right now, um, cyber orange is my favorite color for a car. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying that color because I can find my car easily in a parking lot. And somebody would be like, you, you, old man like you is driving a car like that. You must be having a midlife crisis. Okay, um, define midlife. And so you, you very quickly see that, again, the frame problem. Well, what, what exactly are we talking about? And, and you have that, of course, with a mountain because I was just listening to um, a Peter Zion thing where he's talking about, you know, the U.S. and Iraq and Iraq is all mountains. It's like, oh, okay, that means it's pretty. Oh, that also means it's really hard to invade because mountains are, are very much in the way. No, we have helicopters and planes. No, there's still a problem. There's still an issue. And so very quickly, mountain... And what we understand mountain to be is framed uh, from here in Sacramento. Often I can see Mount Diablo. And is Mount Diablo really a mountain? It's not really that high. A little up, up the north, up north here, we have Sutter Buttes. And some people have said that's the smallest mountain range in the world. You look at them, they're, they're kind of hills, but somewhere, somewhere has a technical definition of mountain 
as a or a mountain range as opposed for, to a hill. And of course, we have the Sierras here, which are significantly high mountains. And, you know, 10, 12,000 feet. You have, you have Mount Shasta, which is further north in the valley, one of the, the southernmost Cascade mountains. And so you very quickly begin to see that, oh, this, this stuff is different. And, and so then, okay, is it, is it a mountain or is it a, a pile of rocks? But very quickly you begin to say, well, what exactly, and as a kid you worked, what is a stone and what is a rock? Hmm. And, and, and this goes back and forth. And so this, this is where we get to the point of deconstruction. So I've also been um, on Twitter, I, I posted a thing, I talked to John Verveke about it, about, about deconstruction. So this is from David Hayward, who was a um, who was an evangelical minister and and sort of deconstructed and left it. I got a really someone sent me a really good piece by Jake Meter from Mere Orthodoxy on why the Gen X crop of emergent pastors never sort of sort of were able to accomplish what the older generation of Keller, Carson, and Piper did. Interesting. Anyway, here's the tweet. Um, David Hayward tweets, um, what was deconstructed, deconstruction like for you? And again, deconstruction, this, is, this has become sort of a fashionable term about uh, leaving Christianity or leaving the church. And, and what's interesting is that it's, it, it of course sort of has a, a postmodern valence about it. It, it's sort of the idea that I was I was living under an illusion, and by looking at the pieces of something, I was able to take it apart. And so this guest on Glenn Scrivener, in some ways, deconstructs Yuval Harari's comment about mountains. We could say that. And this this woman this woman tweets, "Y'all do not understand. Before my deconstruction, I had 30 people show up to help me move. But when I moved this March, not one single person showed up to help. It was just me and Parker. And I sat at home alone afterwards and cried. Screw them. Doesn't fix the profound loss. And it's a it's a powerful tweet because it gains that. Okay, I can I can sit home and be angry." And and many people who deconstruct, we can go back to the um, those two guys that were on the radio. They're Christian youth pastors. I made a bunch of videos about it a few years ago because they were doing some thinking about it. For many people, this deconstruction is not kind of a voluntary thing. They found themselves living with these questions and and not really being able to answer them. And so, in some ways, their faith fell apart. The stories migrated, the spirits moved, and their faith fell apart, and their community group fell apart. All of this, I did a, I did a video on, on common religion recently. All of these benefits that they got from common religion, belief in a higher power who could deliver, who could guide through providence, who, who was someone that they could call out to when they were in trouble. Uh, their anticipation of a blessed afterlife and how that shaped this life. Uh, justice that this world can't and won't afford. The fact that people get away with all kinds of stuff in this world and then they slip off out of this world and there's nothing you can do about it. Could be the uncle you molested you or a tyrant who, who did something against you. A meaningful arena to act within. 
a community of mysteries to pursue, a community of mentors to follow, a tradition, um, the opponent processing of religion, enough order for emotional stability, enough chaos to prevent stagnation, community. Um, people are the opponent, C.S. Lewis's first and second friend. And products of religion, meaning, beauty, stability, hope. And um, I talked... Anyway, you can go back and if you just Paul Vanderclay common religion a video that I did a couple of weeks ago, you can probably find it. This this was sort this was lost to them and and they don't know what they do. And on top of it, you know, whether or not they are being punished by that community or perhaps that when they were a faithful member of the church, they thought they could just stand up in church and say, I'm moving and could really use a lot of help and then people would show up. But now that they're no longer going to church, they don't feel like they have the relational capital to say to people, would you come help me move? Because in a sense, in the arenic sense, when you do it in the middle of a church, you're in some way saying, you know, I'm leveraging, <laughs> it's an indulgence, I'm leveraging the merits of Jesus Christ to have you come and help me move. And that's gone. That's just gone. So this part of this video really grabbed my attention. That's religious posture, no matter what. I'm curious about something that you, you we talked a little bit about just now, and that was kind of the limits I guess, or perhaps the downsides of hyper-empiricism. And it took me back to two conversations that I had. The first was with Daka Keltner, um, a professor in California who was studying and researching awe. And uh, I was in two minds, actually, about conducting the interview because I'd had a conversation just a couple of weeks earlier with Ian McGilchrist, brilliant man, and uh, I remember that McGilchrist said to me, uh, never make a beautiful thing explicit because yeah. when you break it down to its parts, you know, you rob it of his power, love, romance, mystery. He said, conversely, if you take the worst part. Okay, so never make the elements of a mountain explicit. The rocks the elevation, the dirt. What have you just done to a mountain? Now here in California this time of year, it's nice to get out of the city and out into the country because even if you just say go up on a rise and a bridge or if you start driving up into the foothills, you see these the amazing Sierra vistas of snow-capped mountains and it's, it's just breathtaking. Oh, I'm seeing a bunch of rocks. Mm, there's deconstruction. You know, C.S. Lewis's quip about stars. Some say stars are just a, a ball of flaming gas. And, of course, C.S. Lewis and his medieval mind thought, no, I see, I see angels and heavenly hosts. And, and so this explaining is a dangerous business. And when he said that, I thought, oh. And I immediately thought of the rocks and mountains conversation straight down to its parts you know you rob it of his power love romance mystery he said conversely if you take the worst parts death disease he said you should make those things um explicit so i'm curious you know do you agree with that about not making beautiful things kind of explicit 
I think that the word explicit, yeah, we need to understand what the word explicit is, which is you could say the the focusing on the constituents of something is... Remember what Harari said? Cut open a person. Why is it so traumatic, let's say, if 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 you're if you're driving back from somewhere and you see a car accident and you recognize it's a friend's car and oh, it's a, my friend had a car accident you get out of the car and you run over and you discover the body of your friend opened up mutilated destroyed taken apart trauma why didn't you know that your friend was full of blood and guts and bones and all of these things? Oh, but that wasn't my friend. Well, what exactly was your friend? See, it's, it's exactly these parts, it's exactly these moments that are taking apart modernity because modernity, taking apart modernity, because modernity had taken everything apart. And in the, the desire for technology and the desire for mastery and the desire for all of these things, we took the world apart. And then we said, hey, you're just a bundle of blood and guts. Is If that's what he means, and I'm focusing on the constituents of something, is if that's what he means, and I totally agree. Yes, yes. Because when you focus on constituents of something, you actually are moving away from the gestalt, right? It's unitary reality, the, the, the thing that makes it one. Um, and you can see it, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, it's like his one move. That's his one philosophical move, is to take something meaningful and then show what it's made of, like just describe the- Now notice what Jonathan just did. When he said it's his one philosophical move, he just did it to Neil deGrasse Tyson because, oh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson is famous. And of course, what fame is sort of this tell that we all have that they're looking at him, they're looking at him, they're looking at him. I'm going to look at him, too. That's basically what fame is. Now, I just deconstructed fame. And Jonathan just deconstructed him and said he's got one move. So now when I watch Neil deGrasse Tyson, I'm going to see he just that's his one move. I'll watch him again. There it is again. Now suddenly Neil deGrasse Tyson goes from wherever he was down to here because he's a one-trick pony. Now I just put a meme on it. Watch what we're doing. We're just taking things apart. The parts and then thinks that it annuls the meaning of it. Uh, and you see that it's like just a reductionist. It's such a reductionist move, but it works because, you know, if you... You know, if you think of like we could take a simple example, like if you if I say that, oh, kissing is exchanging saliva with another person uh, and it's like, well, that's disgusting. What the hell? Like, you know, it's like sex is exchanging body fluids. You know, that's what sex is. It's like you, you when you reduce it to to like its crass constituents, uh, then all of a sudden it, it loses what it is in the sense that obviously kissing is not. Kissing is not exchanging saliva with someone. Like it, it, it actually moves towards the encountering of a person, of their face. You know, like you're coming close to the person. Like there's all these analogies about how we, when we kiss someone, what it is that we're doing. That you know, the taking the thing that, that makes meaning and bringing it close to the other person. Taking the thing that also is the way in which you enter things into your body and bringing it close to the person. Like that's what's happening when you're kissing someone. Uh, and and exchanging saliva 
it's the mechanics of it, but it does reduce it in a way that you lose what it is that's actually happening when you're doing it. Now, it's interesting because in that illustration, he, he showed two ways of sort of understanding kissing. One was the physical, biological, or the material level, and the other was the sort of psychological level. And it was also a form of deconstruction, but it was sort of a, um, it was sort of a reverence form of deconstruction. My, my wife and I have been re-watching Yellowstone, and of course, we, we saw it maybe a year ago or so, and now we're re-watching it, and it's interesting watching it. I watch myself watching it again, noticing, okay, if you had had me sort of script out everything that had in Yellowstone, there's some salience things that I could remember, and now watching it again, oh yeah, just prompts, oh yeah, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that. There's this... There's this scene in in season two. Now, spoiler alert here, a little spoiler alert, Yellowstone, not a big one. There's Beth, who's... Boy, Beth, that character, Beth, she's hell on legs. And there's Rip, who's a different kind of chaos creature. But there's always tension, sexual tension between the two of them, relational tension. And, um, and then you get the backstory, where Rip was a kid who was in a terrible situation. He basically had to kill his father in order to try to save his mother and his brother unsuccessfully. And he was kind of a wild kid that, that John Dutton took in and, um, and raised. And Beth, who her mother blamed her for her mother's death, and that's part. Of, so they're both. They both. They they both committed patricide or matricide. In different contexts, and that eats at both of their psyches. And so now, see what I'm doing. So here are constitutive elements of their psyche, and now that I'm sort of, fleshing out the characters with those constitutive elements, there's a way to do it that enhances. The character and the reverence and the mystery of the character and a way to do it that sort of undermines it. So there's a touching scene. It's a flashback scene. Young Rip and young Beth. And she she's she's in there's a power differential there. She's the boss's daughter and he's basically just at best a a a not terribly valued hand living in the barn. And so yeah, there's a there's a power imbalance when she demands he kisses her. And he says, I don't know how to kiss. And she says, neither do I. And so then they suddenly now, again, sort of a respectful, hmm, what are we going to call this? There's a, there's a deconstruction that, there's a deconstruction that glorifies and a deconstruction that desecrates. Let's say it that way. Maybe I'll take that note, maybe include it into the title. Because it's, of course, the sacred. <laughs> By definition, it's the frame, it's all of these things. It's the sacred that, we, that, that we're drawn to, that draws us, that, that, that moves us forward in life, that energizes us. One of the 
one of the ideas for a video today is the introduction to G.K. Chesterton's uh, biography of St. Francis. What a powerful piece of work. Real, I've, I've listened to it three times now, and every time I listen to it, it's like, wow, this is, this is really helpful. Because, I mean, Francis, Chesterton just lays it out so well. You know, of course, Lewis said of Chesterton, well, all the apologetic work was done by Chesterton, which is so interesting. So there's a there's a there's a deconstruction that glorifies and a deconstruction that desecrates, and so what we're doing so often in these conversations is where we're we're playing between these two. Because some things we wish to desecrate, in a sense, Jonathan Pichot desecrates Neil deGrasse Tyson there. Sam Harris tries to desiccate desiccate desecrate desiccate in a sense, desecrate the experience of God or the power of God in a culture. And, and so McGilchrist pointing that out, don't deconstruct the beautiful or don't deconstruct the, because you'll just wind up with, and of course this is what happened in modern art, and of course this is Jonathan Peugeot's story. Oh, look, we can deconstruct beauty. Oh, Great. Oh, look, you gave me this beautiful vase. I can deconstruct it. Smash! What do I have? Broken pottery. Is that an upgrade? Uh, and is it reasonable to say that it's a fair hypothesis that continuously breaking things down to take beautiful things, robbing them of their meaning, as you said, you know, uh, taking them to their constituents in the DeGrasse Tyson kind of way. Is it reasonable to say that that may perhaps foster nihilism? That is what nihilism is. But there's a trick, right? And the thing about the thing about the Neil DeGrasse Tyson move is that it really is a trick. I mean, it it's actually is not coherent because what you do is you actually just reduce something to the constituents that inform that high level. So you just bring it down one level. So for now, again, it's you bring it down to a certain valence of constituents according to whether you want to glorify or desecrate. For example, you say, you know, kissing someone is exchanging saliva. But you don't say kissing someone is a quantum field. Because then what? 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 Right? You don't bring it all the way down, all the way down to let's say its most constitutive uh, structure. Because what that? What is that? What would that even be? And so it's a trick because exchanging saliva is also something that has identity, also something that has meaning. And if you so, so when you break things down, you're moving towards nihilism. It's a dangerous move to make, but a way to help your way out of it is that even the elements that you break things down to are also meaningful. And you would have to keep breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking down to something which is actually even totally unrecognizable to the place you started and would, would just be randomness, basically. And so, for example, if you wanted to break down... Oh, got to take that call. So when you say that kissing is exchanging bodily fluids, you've made the relevance, you made the choice, okay? 
you've made the choice in terms of what things you're pointing to. You could say water is the essence of life, and so kissing, we are, we are, we are exchanging the essence of our lives with this kiss. Oh, can you live without water? No. If you're dramatically dehydrated, your kisses will be dry. Um, worship music makes me think of a, you know a sloppy wet kiss. Um, so just notice that we. we we put on this cloak of the great, the great modern cloak of objectivity. If I say bodily fluids, it sounds so objective. These are objective. But if I say the water of life or the essence of your life, how much of us is water? A healthy human being will have plenty of saliva. You know how it goes with dehydration at first use, first First, you can't cry anymore. And I mean, dehydration moves down the body. Let's see, I just deconstructed something again for us again. But if, is it to glorify or is it to desecrate? Uh, and so you and so it's important to understand that when I say that, it's not just like we're trying to comfort ourselves, like you're trying to comfort yourself with the idea that these things have meaning. It's that. Things have meaning all the way through, all the way down, and you can't avoid it. Meaning is inevitable. How do we know perhaps when to stop? Because McGill Christie obviously made the case that, you know, avoid doing this process with beautiful things. Do it with the worst things in existence. Mm. Death, disease, he gave the arguments for. Is it that simple of just to take the, the things that you don't want to give power to? Is that what we do with it? And that's an interesting idea. I had never heard that as a as a possible solution. I think it's a it's a fascinating one. It'd be it'd be one that it would be worth thinking about more. Um, you know, I would say like it, it would be it would be dangerous to do that in terms of evil. Uh, I can understand why you would want to do it in terms of death and disease because evil is usually. You don't want to break it down too much with constituents because it actually is a form of de of deranged meaning. You know, me evil is a form of twisted meaning making, and so you want to be able to capture it at the right level. You want to oppose it, like if you would say that that I don't know someone who robbed you, you have to be careful. Like if you just say, well, it's just an event that happened, and it's this and that particle that hit this and that particle, uh, you won't have the strength to to oppose it. But I, I, I understand what he's saying, and I think that there's definitely something right about it. Yeah, uh, when they, stabbing you was just relocating some of your bodily fluids from the inside to the outside. Don't you do that every day when you urinate? Well, well, yes, but blood and urine, in terms of where, when, how, pretty medically relevant actually if you walk into a doctor's office and say yeah i am um releasing bodily fluids from the inside to the outside right now he might be thinking are you peeing your pants and then maybe you open your coat and you see a huge blood stain on your shirt the doctor will respond in very different ways to the two different situations of his intuition we spoke before and a part of the conversation that I think really resonated with people was um, 
a kind of discussion that we had about heaven and hell. And I'm curious, you know, in your work. Okay, so he's going to go on to that. And so if you're interested in that, see the whole video. The link is below. But it was very interesting, again, to see Paul Blackham or Blackham make this point and think, oh, I've heard this point again and again and again. It's cropping up. And then Jonathan sort of walks through it. And then the McGilchrist point about deconstruction. And again, I, I, for me, making these videos is about sort of provoking something of a flow state and having insight while I make the video. And because I didn't start out this video with destruction that glorifies versus uh, deconstruction that glorifies and deconstruction that desiccates desecrates <laughs> that r is important um desiccates too i suppose and and uh grim grizz and the uh the vna might pick up on my um my little misspeaking just as they did from emissary to embassy so leave a comment curious what you think